0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: All right, tonight we're going to look at John Chrysostom, who was a um, contemporary of Augustine. How many of you ever heard of Augustine before we studied him last night last week? How many of you have ever heard of John Chrysostom? Well then, we're in for a treat tonight, and that's kind of exciting. John Chrysostom is a very, very interesting man, and I think he's going to be worth our, our time studying tonight. We have, for the most part, in our studies together, looked at Western Christianity. By that I mean the the um the kind of Latin and Roman side of things. But this is going to be Greek Christianity, and we're going to look a little bit at John Chrysostom. Now Imagine, if you will, a preacher so gifted that whenever he preached, people were so spellbound that pickpockets were able to ply their trade with impunity during the sermon. Now realize the people stood up during the, you know, there were no pews, so they're standing up and these folks would move through the crowds and they had incredible success during Chrysostom's sermons because they were just spellbound. Imagine a preacher that gifted. Imagine a preacher so gifted that, Crowds of people would rudely push and shove their way to the front of the church in order to hear him better. There are no PA systems, and so there's a limit to what you could hear further at the back. Uh, and the people were there, in all Christian love, pushing and shoving, kind of like at a European soccer match to kind of get the best seats. Imagine a preacher so popular with the people at his first pastorate that he had to be kidnapped in order to be established at his next pastorate. They had to steal him out of the city. Talk about that. Imagine a preacher so popular that the people of the capital city of the most powerful empire in the world rioted when they heard he'd been exiled for preaching the Word of God. Now, if I ever got evicted from this pulpit for preaching the Word of God, do you think the city of Durham would riot? I doubt it. Well, (laughs) the whole city went nuts when he was expelled. And so um, the amazing thing about church history is that such a preacher really did once live. And his name was John... Uh, well, Chrysostom, the name Chrysostom was given him 150 years after he died. The name in Greek means golden mouth. And uh, it just uh, speaking about his ability to preach. Some church historians believe he may have been the greatest preacher in the history of the church. Uh, just following up on some of the stories that I've already told a little bit. In John's day, as I mentioned, people didn't sit. During sermons, they stood, they milled around, they would share news with each other. Uh, it was just a big kind of basilica, an open area, and they would stand there almost like at a, uh, you know, a marketplace or whatever, and they would they would listen to the sermon and they discuss it even during the sermon. They'd frequently clamor for more when he was done, even though he would preach on average about two hours. So, uh, again, I'm telling you folks, you don't know how good you have it. Some of these figures from <laughs> church history, they just went on and on. But, you know, interesting that people would, would call out things. They would clap in the middle of the sermon. They'd boo or hiss at other times or be totally stunned into silence. It was just a really dynamic experience listening to him preach. Um, and at one point in one of his sermons, he became John became so frustrated at the unruliness of the congregation um, that he said Christ never had to contend with such an ill-disciplined group of hearers. But the disciples always just simply listened and quietly and politely until he had finished. And so I propose that from now on there be no applause during sermons. And everybody liked that idea so much they went nuts and applauded. So <laughs> brought the house down with a wild ovation and that idea went right out the window. So it's hard to believe that anyone would care that much about preaching, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to think that way, but uh, it is true. And uh, I think, as we shall see as we go on tonight, the people back then weren't as different from us as we may think. A lot of similarities, with some differences too. And we may question today the role of preaching. Some people are, you know, they're saying, "Hey, we're living in a, in a high-impact MTV kind of image-oriented um, deal these days. People want—they want to be entertained. They want—they um, want things to be fast. The attention span is short." Have you ever looked at an average commercial these days for how long there's one camera angle or, or one image on the screen in a 30 second ad, you could get as many as 15 changes or more, you know, just boom, boom, boom. Sometimes, you know, like that, you know what I'm talking about? It almost gives you a headache to watch it. (laughs) I have some old tapes of sporting events from the, from the, uh, from, sorry, from the eighties, about 20 years ago. And, um, the commercials look dull by comparison. It's one guy sitting and talking about the new Toyota or something like that. It has all been within the last 15 or so years that this kind of thing is going on. But along with it are, are some church growth experts and all that talking about the signs of the times. And, and that preaching may be on its way out. Well, don't you believe it? Because God has ordained that preaching is the means by which people come to know Christ and are also trained in it. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. He's chosen this foolish means, and it continues to have its impact. Now, that doesn't mean that every generation of preachers doesn't need to study their own generation as well as the Scriptures and try to understand how to explain the changeless text to a constantly changing world. But, you know, we talk about the constantly changing world. I really don't think people are changing as much as we think they are. The outer trappings are changing, but at heart we're still dealing with the same things. You could summarize the temptations in three. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. It's been the same thing. And we don't change much. We're not, we're not any different. But the outward trappings have changed. And we also wonder, you know, in this postmodern world that we live in, we've talked much about it on our Wednesday nights, the sense of uh, no absolute truths. There's a rejection of authority figures standing up and communicating truth. Well, who is this person to tell me what truth is? That kind of thing. But you know, the fact of the matter is that has always been the case. There have always been those who have rejected the truth. They rejected the words of Christ. Jesus would teach and immediately the, the group would be divided into those that accepted and believed and those that rejected and would not believe. It's, it's been happening all along and it will continue to happen. And so, therefore, just because some people hear and reject does not mean that preaching itself is obsolete or that truth is obsolete. Truth continues. God has ordained simple verbal communication of the message as the enduring means of gospel advance. Preaching will never become obsolete. But John Chrysostom gives us a powerful example of the impact that a sold-out preacher, I mean, on-fire preacher for God, one who lived out self-sacrificially his message, not just preaching it, but living it, can have on a group of people, even on a whole city. The question I'd like to ask for ourselves tonight is, can we handle the heat? This is a question that the editors of Christian History Magazine, they did a special on Chrysostom, and this is what Mark Dolly, the editor of Christian History, said. There was a fire in John's gut. He loved Jesus Christ and had little patience with Christians who did not lay every ounce of body, mind, and soul at Jesus' feet. As much as I am drawn by his spiritual fire, I have to admit I'm hesitant to get too close lest I get singed. And if you start reading some of Chrysostom's sermons, some of the things that he wrote, you'll understand what he's talking about. This was a man who was on fire for Jesus Christ. He was sold out for him. And it got him into trouble. Got him into a lot of trouble. Persecution and the things he faced were because he would not compromise, even in the face of an emperor who was angry at him. After his death, one of John's many admirers wrote, it would be a great thing to attain to his stature, But it would be hard. Nevertheless, even the following of him is lovely and magnificent. So I want us tonight for about 45 minutes to follow him and to try to understand his life and his fire, how he preached and what impact he had on people. I think that John Chrysostom speaks to the shallowness of our modern materialistic pleasure-seeking age. He speaks also to the issues of wealth and poverty, of social justice, compassion on the poor and needy. He speaks to the passion each Christian should have for the Word of God. And he speaks also to the kind of courage a Christian must have in speaking the truth in love. It's hard in every generation. It was hard in his time, too. Now, what I've given you there is an overview of the major events of John's life, John Christendom's life. He was born in the year 345, approximately 345 A.D. in Antioch. We'll talk about that. He was ordained a deacon in Antioch appointed a presbyter, or another word would be elder, and chief preacher in Antioch, 386. Uh, 387, he delivered his famous homilies on the statutes. That's probably his most famous sermon series that he did. And then uh, 397, became archbishop of Constantinople, 397 to 398, around there. We're not exactly sure of the date, but it was about that time. Uh, he was exiled from Constantinople, 403 or 404 approximately, and then he died in exile in Pontus, 407. That's a quick overview of his life. Let's look into some more details and try to find some things out his early life, we see the impact um, again of a godly mother. And we're going to keep coming up against this again and again in church history. It's amazing the number of major figures in church history had godly mothers who prayed for them and trained them in an amazing way. In John's day, Christianity was rapidly becoming the official religion of the Eastern Roman Empire. Now, this is um, just a little bit after... Uh, Constantine, maybe a couple of generations after Constantine. Just because Constantine converted doesn't mean that the empire became Christian. And shortly after Constantine, around 360 or so, one of the emperors, Julian the Apostate, he was called by in later years, tried to turn the whole Roman Empire back to paganism. We're going to do the Jupiter thing or the Zeus thing again. We're going to try to do all that thing, and it didn't work. It was kind of like a one-man revival of paganism. It wasn't long after that that it went back more or less to Christianity, but not officially. But by the time John was really getting going, the Eastern and in the Western Roman empires were kind of overtly Christian, even though only about half the population was Christian. Um, Sundays, for example, were declared state and legal holidays. Pagan festivals were abolished. The theater and circus were forbidden on Sundays. Ultimately, all pagan temples and sacrifices were forbidden. So it just went over. And remember, we did not have separation of church and state, not at all. And that's going to play in in a major way in our story about John tonight um basically all that oppression and all of that authority kind of went over on the Christian side and then it became Christianized and uh, paganism was outlawed and abolished, just like that. Well, this man was born around 347 in uh, in Antioch. Uh, do you know about Antioch? Antioch's a biblical town, isn't it? What are some things that happened in Antioch? Paul yeah, Paul went on his missionary journey from there, what are you gonna say? The church at Antioch was a strong what was it? what happened first in Antioch? That's right. That was the place where they were first called Christians. That's where the label was first uh first applied to us. Christians. That's Acts eleven twenty six. Uh as Gail mentioned, Acts thirteen, Paul and Barnabas were sent out on the first missionary journey from Antioch. Acts thirteen, in the church in Antioch there were prophets and teachers. And uh Paul and Barnabas were among them. Uh, it was also the site of the early uh, controversy over circumcision. That's kind of where the whole circumcision battle really flared up. It was in Antioch that uh, the apostle Paul publicly rebuked the apostle Peter on that very issue. See, Peter was uh, kind of secretly having fellowship with the Gentiles, but, you know, eating with them, etc., but in public he wouldn't be seen with them. And so Paul finally had, had enough and rebuked him to his face because he, he was doing it publicly so he had to be rebuked publicly and uh, he was right and Peter backed down and he agreed Well, I tell you something Paul you know what would it take to take on Peter but it helps to be right and that's what he did but that was at Antioch now John's father was Secundus he was an officer in the Roman army he died when John was an infant and his mother was about 20 years old when her husband died she was a young woman she was beautiful she was talented she had many opportunities and offers to remarry, but she decided to forego them so she could raise her son and her daughter, focus on her two young children. She never did remarry. And she provided John with the best possible education, training him in the best schools in Antioch. The hottest career at the time back then was rhetoric. Who else studied rhetoric? Studied him last week, Augustine. Augustine studied rhetoric. Well, what is rhetoric? It's the science of language, the study of the way to make a speech. The way to persuade people, and it kind of clicked into politics and law, and and all those important careers. So if you could make a speech, if you could communicate clearly in front of people, you could go a long way. And so his mother trained uh, or had him trained in rhetoric, um, and John was therefore trained by the greatest rhetoric teacher in Antioch, a pagan named Libanius. Now it's interesting that she chose a pagan; she just wanted to get him the best education. But many Christian parents do that too. Do you know any overtly Christian colleges? There's a few. But uh, most of us uh, might send our children to um, to non-Christian schools, and even the Christian schools, you know, there's going to be a strong non-Christian influence. So uh, it's not all that shocking that uh, he was he received his education in the hands of a pagan. But this pagan was especially hostile to Christianity, so it was a little risky little risky so she was he was learning rhetoric but meanwhile I'm sure he was making snide comments about Christianity and hoping that the Empire would go back to paganism that was libanius libanius openly disdained Christianity and he chose rather to attend pagan cults and he saw how talented John was he was an amazing communicator even at that early stage and uh, he started to kind of groom him for the future he wanted him to replace him as a professor of rhetoric where he was Uh, John himself wanted to be a lawyer he was trained to be a lawyer, and that was his focus. He was working on that just like many, many, many years later. Another John, John Calvin, wanted to be a lawyer as well and was training for law. So that was uh, John's early hopes. But his mother had other desires, and she's on her knees day after day praying for him. Uh, amazing woman, godly woman. Um, Anthusa was her name. I think that's printed on your sheet there. No, it isn't. Her name is Anthusa. And just one of those just heroes of church history behind the scenes. So she's praying for her son day after day, and there are few powers on earth as strong as the prayers of a godly mother. I mean, there's nothing can beat it. And so day after day she's praying, and there starts to be an influence. And as a matter of fact, her influence is so powerful that Libanius <laughs> threw up his hands and was heard to remark, Lord, what women these Christians have. And uh, basically there's a lot of strong Christian women who are influencing their children for Christ and he couldn't compete and finally he kind of gave up John was converted somewhere in the years of his formal education we're not quite sure when he declared himself to be Christian he was baptized in the church at Antioch when he was 18 years old and immediately he longed as many Christians did at that time he longed to go into a life of seclusion and monasticism out in the desert that's what he wanted to do that was that was the high road of Christian service that was ambitious and that's what you wanted to do. Well, at this point, his mother kind of backed, backed away a little bit. Well, I wanted you to be a Christian, but not that much of a Christian kind of thing. She had already lost her husband, and she didn't want to lose her son now at this point. For him to go off in the desert, she might never see him again. And so she took him into the room where he had been born. And in tears, she points to the bed where she lay, where he was born, and told him the, uh, the one thing that made her widowhood easier. This is kind of the guilt manipulation technique here. The one thing that made her widowhood easier was that John resembled her father, his father. So basically, as she, she had, son, as I look at your face, I can see your father, who's died now these many years, you know, this kind of thing. And so he's pulling, she's pulling at his heartstrings. She reminded him that the young have their whole lives in front of them and that she would soon be facing death. You can hear the violins in the background. And she asked him to spare her Second, loneliness and not leave her before she died. She pleaded, when you have committed me to the ground and united me with your father's bones, then set out on your long travels and sail whatever sea you please. Then there'll be nobody to hinder. But until I breathe my last, be content to live with me. So uh, she prevailed upon him and was successful. And he did wait. Finally, uh, in the year 370, 70, uh, about 370, when he was about 25 years old, his mother died, and John immediately entered monastic seclusion in the desert. So he didn't put it off. I mean, he, he never gave up on it, but he honored his mother until she died. Well, he went and studied under a famous monk, Diodorus, for a while, and he lived in a cave for two years by himself. Now, Diodorus is an interesting figure. One thing that well, I don't think we're going to have time to get into, but I would love to study with you sometime are the two different schools of scripture interpretation that there were back then. There was the Antiochian school based in Antioch, and there was the Alexandrian school based in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, you know that Alexandria was established by what great military figure? Who's buried in Grant's tomb? All right, who established? Alexander, very good. Alexander the Great established Alexandria. It remains Egypt's number one seaport. But it also became a center of Christianity. It was originally a center of Judaism. You know, when the Jews kind of fled out of the prom, they, they sta- established and set themselves up in Egypt, and many of them settled in Alexandria. There was a tremendous Jewish library there, but it also became a center of Christianity as, as well. And uh, in about the year 250 or so, Origen was there, and he was doing his great work. A super genius, probably too much of a genius. One of the problems with being an incredibly intelligent person who's handling the scripture, you're always trying to see something that no one else has seen. And so these folks had this whole allegorical approach to Scripture. Same thing that Philo, a Jew before the time of Jesus, was doing with the Old Testament. They're finding allegorical things. You know, you're not just reading the Scripture straight. You're finding these spiritual meanings, especially in colors and numbers. Uh, Numbers were huge for these folks. They're always looking at, at numbers. And basically the idea was if you were spiritually pure, you could see my interpretation. But if you can't, if you're not, you're not going to understand. You'll never see the higher. It sounds like the emperor's new clothes all over again, right? A recurring theme. Kind of like if you're a spiritual person, you can understand. And so what happened was the, the, um, the meaning and the interpretation of the scripture kind of floated away from the literal text. And after a while, the string got cut. It just wasn't tied to anything. It just became what you could call flights of fancy. And you never knew where you were going to end up. Now, I would love, like I said, to actually read some of their interpretations. We start out somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount and where we end up, who knows? And if you can't follow it, you've got sin in your life, basically, is how that worked. That was the Alexandrian approach. Well, the Antiochian approach was exactly the opposite. They said, this is ridiculous. We don't. How can you derive any truth from Scripture that way? We need to read line after line of Scripture and just read it the way it's written. Verbs and nouns and adjectives and a historical context. The Antiochian exegesis is the exegesis I use. And it was lost for in the Western church for a long time because Augustine used a lot of allegory and it became more and more allegorical um, through the uh, Western history. And it was the reformers that brought back that Antiochian exegesis, what we call the grammatical, historical, literal approach to exegesis. We're trying to understand the author's original intent and to stay as close to the text as possible. And John Chrysostom did that. He was an excellent preacher in the Antiochian approach. Now, all of this is just words unless I actually were to read to you interpretations of the same text. We could take one text, like let's say Jesus' Transfiguration and just read what Origen did with it and read what John Chrysostom, let's say, would do with it and you could see a comparison, but we don't have time for that tonight. That would be some other interesting thing. I try to avoid allegory when I when I teach the scriptures. And there are some texts that really do lend themselves well to allegory. Like what are the Goliaths in your life? You know that kind of thing, or the dry bones. What are the dry bones in your life? You know this kind of thing. Or um, one of my favorites. It's. It's. I tell you something. There's a strong gravitational pull toward allegory in this one, and that's Peter walking on the waves. Okay. You know. And what is the allegory there? Well, here's Jesus walking on the water. He invites Peter to come out of the boat, and Peter comes out of the boat and starts to walk on the water. And what happens to Peter? Well, he starts to sink. And why does he start to sink? All right, and what is the meaning? Keep your eyes on Jesus and don't look at the troubles in your life. Uh Uh-oh, we went to allegory. Just like that. It happens so quickly. You don't even know it's happening. Is that about troubles in your life? No, it's about the power of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Now, that applies to the troubles in your life, definitely, but let's not take the shortcut of allegory. Let's go back up to historical text and what actually happened, and then we learn the lesson that's meant to be learned there, that Jesus is powerful, and then apply it how you like in your life. But I'm just saying the pull toward allegory is strong. One of the, the most allegorized books in the, in the Old Testament is Jonah. I mean, it's just nothing but allegory. And they handled Jonah with allegory all the time. But the Antiochian approach was um, what we would call sober exegesis. Everything was tied to a text. It was tied to a verse. And you could say, look, read it for yourself. Here it is. How would you interpret this? And so it, it worked on that way. And there was almost kind of a struggle and a war between these two schools and these two approaches. But John learned from Diodorus the Antiochian exegesis, the approach that uh, I use and the Reformation use today. And most of you use, too. I mean, when you read, don't you just find verbs and nouns and adjectives and read it like it's written? So, um, but back then, it was kind of like, well, that was for babies. That's baby talk. When you get really spiritual and start to see the insights that we have, then you'll start to float away from the text and you'll know what it is we see. We can talk about that more another time. Anyway, we've left John out in the desert. He was out there for two years, all right? He studied under Diodorus for a while, and then he went out and lived in a cave, literally. And he ate hardly anything. And his asceticism, sleeping out in a cold cave um, with very little to eat or drink, was so severe that it broke his health permanently. He never recovered physically, never. And this is a common thing. I mean, it was, a, it was a problem for Luther. His intestines were never the same because of his long fasts. A lot of these folks really just pushed it right to the edge. Um, and and as Luther pointed out later, that you know w- what is enough? When is it ever enough? You see, there's no sense of the justification by faith and all. that. There's ne- never enough. You, you know, if you've got any comfort at all in your life, it's too much. You see, and so they're out there living in a cave and they're wearing the most uncomfortable clothing and they're freezing cold and they're <coughs> eating nothing, and and that's how it goes. And you're just proving your spirituality this way. I think it's very interesting. I'm not allegorizing here. Okay, Jesus, when he was in the boat, remember he fell asleep in the boat and the storms and all that? He had a cushion under his head. What was the cushion for? Well, because the bench was hard. So that's Antiochian exegesis. The bench is hard and he put a cushion. Well, What does that tell you about Jesus? He's not looking for needless suffering and pain. There's plenty of that in this world and there would be plenty for him on the cross and he wouldn't avoid it. He had a mission. He had a cup to drink. But when he's in that boat, he's going to find a cushion for his head. That's true. But he was led by the Spirit to do that. He didn't throw himself off the temple. That would have hurt. You see, and God didn't lead him to do that. I'm not being facetious. He followed the leadership of God, and God led him to do that. And this is what I want to say. I'm not slamming asceticism because, frankly, I believe that John's asceticism gave him the the backbone and the freedom from worldly things to do the things that he is about to do that I'm going to describe. He learned to not care about earthly pleasures. And it affected his preaching. It affected his ministry. It gave him courage. Um, so there was a lot of good things that came out of it. But, you know, there's a balance there. One of the biggest dangers is pride, in my opinion. You know, that you become proud of your fasting. You become pr- proud of your spiritual uh, athleticism. They called it spiritual athletes. Athletics, the Olympic Games and all that were big back then. These guys were spiritual athletes. And they were doing incredible things. All right. Another thing he did out in the desert was he memorized long passages of Scripture. And that affected his preaching because he was able to recite long passages of Scripture while preaching. And so God would draw on those Scriptures all the time. And he had a deep understanding of them through memorization. That was one of his um, disciplines when he was out there. And frankly, what else are you going to do in a cave for two years when you've got the Scriptures with you? And uh, I guess that's the best thing to do is read them and memorize them. And he worked on them. Uh, He also talked a lot about seclusion and the importance of it speaks on seclusion and contemplation. This is what he wrote. For what purpose did Christ go up into the mountain to teach us that loneliness and retirement is good when we are to pray to God? For the wilderness is the mother of quiet. It is a calm and a harbor delivering us from all turmoils. I don't think we have very much quiet in our lives. It's almost driven out. And there's there's a contemplation. I'd like to see more quiet in our worship on Sunday morning. I'd like to see a, a stretch of time in which you're just thinking about some things. Maybe you give everybody's got a verse and they think about it, or maybe not. Maybe you just close your eyes and just pray to the Lord or just listen to Him. It says in Ecclesiastes, guard your steps when you go near to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless, therefore stand in awe of God. That's a passage that talks about silence in the presence of God, Ecclesiastes 5, 1-5. And he knew the value. And why did Jesus go out to lonely places to pray? Well, because when there's people clamoring in your ears, you can't hear God sometimes, even Jesus. And so he'd go out to lonely places. Well, when he was done with his two years of spiritual athleticism out in the uh, desert, he came back to Antioch. Right before his monastic retreat, he'd been ordained a lector. That was a simple reader of scripture in the worship service. On his return, he was ordained a deacon in the church in Antioch at 381. He served under and was discipled by two archbishops, Miletius and Flavian. Both archbishops had suffered for their orthodox views during the Arian controversy. Uh-oh, time for a test. What is the Arian controversy? Remember, the denial of the deity of Jesus Christ. Arianism, that's right. It's same as Arianism, and we see it today in what group, what cult? The Jehovah's Witnesses, that's right. Jehovah's Witnesses that, that believe that Jesus was a powerful, created being. There was a time when Jesus was not. That is false. That's a heresy. And they had the upper hand. They uh, For a period of time then, the, uh, the emperor was Arian, and we know that one man stood up stood against that, Athanasius, our great hero and friend, who stood for Orthodox Christianity, but there were others, and among them were Miletius and Flavian, and they suffered for their Orthodox views, and they taught John about suffering for Orthodox views. They taught him that if you preach the truth, you're going to have to suffer, and he learned that. Well, now we come to the low point of John's life. He weaseled out of ordination the first time. Now, what happened? Well, he had a friend, Basil, and he and Basil, both of them were contemplating going into the ministry, into the ordained ministry, but both felt grossly inadequate. Well, that's a good thing. That's actually, frankly, in my opinion, required uh, for ordained ministry. If you feel adequate to the task, then you haven't understood it. You know, as Paul the Apostle said, and who is equal to such a task? He said that. The answer, no one. No one is equal to this task. Well, I'm glad they felt inadequate, but there's inadequate, and then there's hiding your talent in the ground. You know? Because God is a harsh judge and, and is going to give you a hard time for your ministry at the end. No, you've got to, you know, if your gift is teaching, let him teach, it says in Romans chapter 12. And so they had to do it. But John decided, he talked Basil into it, said, you know, he, he talked him into it and gave him the implication that he was going to join him and be ordained. The time came uh, for those who wanted to be ordained to come forward. Basil walked forward, thinking his friend was right at his side. Uh, little did he re- realize that John had slipped out the back of the building and was hiding at that present time. Cool, cool. that's right. A little bit of cowardice uh, at that particular moment. Um, he was intimidated by the high responsibilities of ordained ministry but didn't want the church to be deprived of his friend Basil. So he talked him into it and then slipped out at the last minute, basically lied to the guy. Um, but out of this came John's greatest work on the ministry, a book that he call, that, that's called On the Priesthood. Basically, it's written to justify his act of cowardice, but it's an amazing treatise on ordained ministry, and it's still useful today. I'm going to read a section from it later on um, just so you see the beauty of it. He was in his 20s when he wrote it. It's amazing what some of these figures in church history did at an early age. John Calvin wrote his first uh, uh, version of the Institutes before he was 30 as well. Uh, Just young men who wrote amazing things. And um, John Chrysostom wrote On the Priesthood when he was in his 20s as well. Contained some of his core values for ministry. Well, finally, he was ordained in the ministry as a presbyter, an elder, chief preacher in 386. The church forcefully called him to it. He didn't have any sense of calling from God. He didn't sense, oh, I need to do this. But the church compelled him to. And this is a regular pattern in John's life. We'll see it later. But basically, a sense of duty and obligation to the church. Um, And to fulfill that, he was called to it. He began preaching when he was 39 years old. That's kind of a late start when you stop and think about it. An awful lot of preparation went into his life. Just like Augustine, a little bit later than Augustine. Augustine was in his early 30s when he began his ministry as well. Um, And it shows me something. It just shows me that God cares an awful lot more about quality than quantity. Um, He only preached for 18 years. That's a short ministry, really, when you stop and think about it. Uh, and so, two-thirds of his life or more was preparation. One-third of it, the actual ministry itself. God cares a great deal about preparation. Can you think about Moses, for example? How much preparation went into Moses' life before he was ready for his calling? Two-thirds of his life. Eighty years. And then a forty-year ministry. I mean, I just, I think that tells us something about God. He's not in the all-fired rush that we are. He wants to build character. He wants to get you ready. And when the time is right, then you get called. And uh, so it was um, with him. He began preaching at 39 and preached for 18 years. But I believe he accomplished more in those 18 years than most preachers do in a lifetime. Uh, he served in a large and influential church, the large and influential church of Antioch for 12 years. Not like there were many churches in Antioch, that was the church and that's where he served. Um, Antioch was a city of great wealth, capital of Syria. We've already talked about it as a major center of Christian learning, best known for, in the pagan world anyway, for their Olympic games and theatrical presentations and festivals. It wasn't long after he began his ministry there that, that came the affair of the statues. Uh, there was basically rebellion in Antioch over increased taxation. Does that sound familiar? Again, I tell you that people haven't changed much. Now, we haven't seen any revolts here um, uh, yet. Okay, that's fine. You know, If you want to organize something. Uh, I'm not encouraging it. Uh, I think paying taxes is a form of worship to God. Um but someone once said, I could worship just as much at half the price. At any rate, there was a riot in Antioch, getting back to history, a riot in Antioch, 388, rebellion occurred, and uh, statues of the emperor and his recently deceased wife were defaced and destroyed. Ooh, That didn't go over very big with the Roman Empire. Um, the one thing they wanted was peace and quiet and taxes. Okay, Peace and quiet and taxes, that's one thing they want out of your town. Your little town, keep it quiet and pay us the taxes, we'll be fine. We'll let you even run yourselves. But, um, uh, rebellion and riots were the very thing they didn't want. And the officials in the empire began to punish city leaders, killing some of them for the riots. The Archbishop Flavian r- uh, rushed 800 miles to Constantinople to plead for forgiveness. And in his place, John preached to a city in turmoil. And this is what he said. Improve yourselves now. He's preaching to these angry people. And this is what he does. It's really remarkable, the courage that he does. He stands up there and says, improve yourselves now, truly. Not as when during one of those numerous earthquakes or in famine or drought or in similar visitations, you leave off your sinning for three or four days and then afterward begin your old life again. Not like that. Stop your evil slandering, harbor no enmities, give up the wicked customs of frivolous cursing and swearing. If you do this, you will surely be delivered from the present distress and obtain eternal happiness. He was very bold in his preaching. This is a riotous crowd, and he's basically saying, stop sinning. Stop your sinning. I mean, really stop, not just for a couple of days, but turn to Christ. After eight weeks or so, um, the Archbishop Flavian returned, <clears throat> and uh, the news was that the emperor was going to spare them. He pardon them, but John had made a name for himself with his preaching, and so someone had his eye on him. Uh, and so we come to a key moment in his life. He is kidnapped to serve Jesus Christ. Kind of exciting. Like I said, he always had a reluctance to serve and also the people there loved his preaching. Well, someone amongst the emperor's inner circle had their eye on him for, in my opinion, I think at that point, the highest position in the church, Archbishop of Constantinople. And so they figured they knew John, they knew the tenor of Antioch and what was going on there, a lot of politics involved. But they sent some soldiers down there. A military officer uh, enticed him or invited him to go outside the city walls, and there's a bunch of soldiers waiting for him. They seized him and arrested him, basically, and took him 800 miles overland to Constantinople. And he was forcibly consecrated and anointed to be Archbishop of Constantinople. He, at that point, just throws up his hands and says, What can you do? It's the providence of God. I mean, he'd rather be back in Antioch, but now he's basically the most powerful figure in eastern in the Eastern Church. Um, Kidnapping had been arranged by this man, Eutropius, who was the emperor's right-hand man, and John just simply accepted it. So now he's, in my opinion, over his head. He's in over his head. I mean, this is a major church. 100,000 members on the roll of that church. 100,000. It was a big position, big authority, all right? And tons of people on staff. I mean, dozens, hundreds even, you know, at different levels a huge budget, major salary, money flowing in. The last five archbishops of Constantinople had lived like kings. It was a major situation. Well, John is still an ascetic. He's still a monk. Probably wishes he were back in that cave. And he doesn't want any part of this kind of lifestyle. He thinks God's forcing him to be here. He's going to make the best of it. He's going to serve the Lord. But he doesn't want any part of that. And he starts to preach. Now it isn't long after that that Eutropius, the guy who had gotten him in there, gets in trouble. You know, intrigues, politics going on all the time. And he's basically in trouble with his life. I mean, when you're in trouble like that, you're, you know, you might be beheaded. And so Eutropius goes to the church and takes refuge in the church, thinking he's going to be safe there. And John gets up to preach. Now everybody's there. It's a Sunday. And he calls Eutropius forward. And he begins to preach. Oh, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He's preaching right to Eutropius. This guy was one of the most powerful men in the world up until this moment. And then he rebukes Eutropius in front of everybody for his worldly, power-loving lifestyle. Christ-hating lifestyle. Rebukes him right in front of everyone. And then he turns to the people while Eutropius is standing there humbled before everyone. And he says this, I say this now, not in order to shame the fallen, but in order to exhort, exhort to prudence those who are still upright. Not in order to push a shipwrecked person into the deep, but to warn others before they are also shipwrecked. And he goes on from there. Amazing. The courage and the clarity. And then he worked and basically brokered a deal with the emperor to save this guy's life. And he worked with him. He taught him some things. There was certain, there was certain arrangement Certain rules. Like who was that guy that um, Shimei, I think it was, that had showered curses on David and Solomon said, okay, I'm not going to kill you, but you have to stay in the city. All right? If you leave the city, your blood's on your own head. wasn't a couple years later, he was chasing some donkeys, left the city, and Solomon said, shh, it's over. And that's about what happened to Eutropius. There was a deal, and he broke it within a year, and he was executed. But uh, he had fair warning, and John worked with him and tried to lead him to Christ. Uh, shortly after that he also courageously stopped a revolt of gothic mercenaries who demanded that an Aryan church one of those ones that says that Christ wasn't truly God be set up in Constantinople they had taken hostage it was like a hostage crisis and he kind of courageously goes in there and again negotiates to get the hostages removed and then goes to the emperor and says give them nothing don't give them the church etc and so the whole thing was dissipated by his personal authority and his influence well that's the good part now I want to tell you about his troubles he had nothing but trouble in Constantinople. Now, the people loved him. It's true. They loved to listen to him preach. But John told the truth. Every time he preached, he told the truth. There was this wedding of power and influence and, and, and uh, money and luxury together with the gospel. And John hated it. And he immediately goes in there and he starts to clean house. He maintains his ascetic lifestyle. He's wearing clothes of a monk, basically. He clears out the rabble. Now, realize if the church is like that, it's going to attract people who are looking for a career in church work, right? I mean, there's good money we have. Hours are pretty good. Work's not bad. I mean, what do you even do? And so, I mean, and there was, there was just a whole bunch of monks and lazy people that are on the payroll and they were just getting fat on, on nothing. And he just gave them all their pink slips, I guess is the way you would say it in modern vernacular. They're gone. All of them cleared him out. Well, he immediately had a whole block of people who are his mortal enemies. These people knew how to play the politics game. They knew how to do politics. Whew. So he clears them out. He refused affluent, lavish feasts. He was invited by the emperor and the empress to dine at their table since he wasn't going to be dining at his own, it looked like. And he refused to come. He just stayed by himself pretty much. He wore simple clothes, as I mentioned. And he used that monstrous salary to open hospitals and to feed the poor and open poor houses and just this money's flowing right through his hands right to the poor all the time. It seemed like every year there was another hospital that he was funding and setting up with the income that he had from his salary. Now realize again, I'm going back to his asceticism. He doesn't care a whit about the things of the world. He's not interested in lavish feasts. He doesn't care about titles of honor. He really doesn't care who he offends. He's just doing God's work. And I think the roots of that were the, was the time he spent out in the desert. Now it broke his health, but God spared him and he lived another, you know, 18 years after that. Or actually at that point more like 25 years because it was 7 more years beyond that. So, I mean, God spared him and he had a long ministry. He just had it in physical pain because of the health that he had. And what courage and what strength and what clarity and purity. Remember, I, 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 as I look over John's life, I think John, uh, James 1.27 sums up a lot of his ministry. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That was John. And I think the roots of it, were, it was his asceticism. He also preached powerful sermons against worldliness. Now, I want to read to you one of the sermons, and he talks about the theater. And I'll tell you something, when I read this, it really opened my eyes. Okay? Now, understand he's preaching against immorality. He used to go to the theater and watch. Now, theater were plays. They weren't movies, of course. You know that. But there were plays in which men and women acted out parts. And they tended to be immoral body kind of things. But, you know, as I read this, I started to see where we're at today. And we're worse than they were. Now, listen to what he says. In a sermon against the theater, he said, if you see a shameless woman, he's talking about actress, in the theater who treads the stage with uncovered head and bold attitudes, dressed in garments adorned with gold, flaunting her soft sensuality, singing immoral songs, throwing her limbs about in the dance and making shameless speeches, do you still dare to say that nothing human happens to you there? Long after the theater is closed, and everyone is gone away. Those images still float before your soul. Their words, their conduct, their glances, their walk, their positions, their excitation, their unchaste limbs. And as for you, you go home covered with a thousand wounds. But not alone, the whore goes with you, although not openly and visibly, but in your heart and in your conscience. And there within you she kindles the Babylonian furnace, in which the peace of your home, the purity of your heart, and the happiness of your marriage will be burnt up. Wow. But the thing that amazed me was the description of what the actress was doing. She's not she doesn't have a covering on her head. She's wearing gold jewelry and she's saying things that are inappropriate in dancing. That's it. What do we have in our movies on T V? What would John say about that? My goodness. But the clarity with which he understands what happens to your soul when you get involved in that. What happens to your marriage? Clear. But that kind of preaching is not popular. Okay, It hits the nail too closely to the head. And people don't like that. He also talked about horse track and gambling. Okay, Popular sports of the day. He says still there are, by the way, the horse track was right across from the church bothered him. And on Sunday they couldn't race, but other days when he was having services it was going on. And he said, Still still there are those who simply leave us here alone and run off to the circus and the charioteers and the horse races. So far they have yielded to their passions that they fill the whole city with their cries and unrestrained yelling. Sounds like the NCAA at one uh at which one would have to laugh if it were not so sad. And uh he also spoke about something else. I'm gonna read it now since it's appropriate. <laughs> He talks about, you know, how they used to applaud after his sermons, which has never happened to me, but I hope it never does, actually. But at any rate, of course, I'm not John Chrysostom. I mean, this guy was amazing. But he said, my sermons are applauded more merely from custom than everyone runs off to horse racing again and gives much more applause to the jockeys, showing indeed unrestrained passion for them. There they put their heads together with great attention and say with mutual rivalry, this horse did not run well. Well, that one stumbled. And one holds to this jockey and another to that. No one thinks any more of my sermons nor of the holy awesome mysteries that are accomplished here. Hey, we love our sports, don't we? Think about what you talk more about, the Lord or whatever is your favorite sport. What kind of passion do people see in some of the sporting events? And what would John say about that? Even more, what's, what's important, what did Jesus say about that? So at any rate... Needless to say, this kind of preaching did not go over very well, especially preached on rich and poor issues. And he specifically went after the emperor and the empress. I mean, talk about sitting, you know, sawing off the branch you're sitting on. I mean, there was no separation of church and state. And so Eudoxia, who was the most powerful person probably on earth at that time, because the emperor was a weak man. Eutropius had been gotten rid of. Guess who got rid of him? Eudoxia got rid of him. She is powerful. Initially they were friends. He baptized her baby. And they spent time talking about spiritual things, but it wasn't long before they you know, at least she realized they are different views, world world views. And so that she didn't hang out there very much anymore and she was a friend turned enemy. And finally she conspired with the bishop of uh, the Archbishop of Alexandria. Do you think he'd be friend or foe? Absolute foe, all right? Alexandria and Antioch, they're just rival cities. And he wanted his man in as Archbishop of uh, Constantinople. There's power involved there. So he hated John, wanted him out of there. And so Eudoxia conspired with this. I mean, politics, I don't even want to go into it. Baptist churches aren't the only ones that have it, folks. I mean, it's been going on a long time, the inner workings and the little consortiums and the stuff, really. Uh, but it's been going on. And then it was literally the politics of the state. It was who was in charge. I mean, you could get executed. You could get put in prison. And so uh, he was very upset by the way he, she was very upset by the way that he preached. And so they conspired to have him removed and he was removed and the city rioted, literally rioted. They went berserk when they found out what had happened. And along with that, this is very interesting. It wasn't a week later, there was a major earthquake in Constantinople and the greatest damage was found in the palace, specifically in the bedroom of the Empress. It was totally ruined. Now she wasn't in there at the time. But she took that, perhaps wisely, as a message from God, that he was not pleased with how he had handled John. It wasn't long before they're asking John to come back. John came back, and I don't know if this is true or not. The historians are are divided on this, but it seems like, at least he's accused of this, that his first week back he preaches on Herodias. Now, Herodias was um, Philip the Tetrarch's wife, and then Herod had married, remember, and then John the Baptist had preached about Herodias. What happened to John the Baptist? And so this is what he preached. Now, I don't know if he did this, but he's at least accused of it. Herodias is again furious. Herodias again dances. She once more demands the head of John on a platter. Whoa. Well, word got to Eudoxia that he preached this sermon. I mean, she, I think, hoped that, all right, she's been chastened by the earthquake. Maybe he's been chastened by his exile. He'll kind of come back and they can kind of have a meeting in the middle. He was worse than before. And so she contrived to have him exiled permanently, and he died on exile. Three weeks after she exiled him the second time, she died in childbirth. Now, again, what do you make of that? I have no idea. All I'm saying is that the people around it saw it immediately as the judgment of God. All right, that's an overview of his life. Now, in terms of his preaching and teaching, I'll just give you some of his philosophy. John was direct and plain spoken. He had a sense of abandon and freedom in the pulpit. He cared far more about pleasing God than pleasing men or women, as we've seen. He had a deep concern and compassion on the poor. Now listen to this, very interesting. John knew that some of the poor that he helped were crafty and took advantage of the church. And we face that issue. And this is what he said. John said, whether the poor are worthy or unworthy, your reward is the same, either way. (laughs) Isn't that true? I think that's beautiful. And I think it frees me up. Because so many times, are they going to use it for drugs? And you know, what are you going to do? And I'm not saying that we don't be wise about it. But what I'm saying is there's there's this blockage in there. And in a way, John just freed himself from that. He said, it's their responsibility what they do with the money. I'm responsible to give. And he did give. And he gave a lot. I mean, the, the poor that he helped were a legion. And he it helped him right out of his own pocket, out of his own salary. Of course, he probably ate like a bowl of soup a week, so it was easy to do that, but um, he, was, he was helping the poor. He was alert and sensitive to the problems of the people. And he believed that Scripture was the answer to all of these things. He said this, reading the Scripture is a great means of security against sinning. The ignorance of Scripture is a great cliff and a deep abyss. To know nothing of the, of the divine laws is a great betrayal of salvation. Now, what year was this? is 400 A.D. How many of these people do you think had their own copies of Scripture? Well, the wealthy ones did, some of them anyway, not portions of Scripture. But they're reading literal papyrus, little handwritten copies of Scripture. But they had them. And he said, wherever you can get them, get them and read Scripture. And when you can't, come and listen to the preaching. And that's why he preached for two hours, because they didn't have Scripture at home. That was what they got for the week. He sometimes got discouraged in his ministry and his work. He said this, my work is like that of a man who is constantly trying to clean a piece of ground into which a muddy stream is always flowing. <laughs> so he cleans it up and it's dirty again. And we all know what that muddy stream is. It, it's our hearts. It's the sin in our hearts. And all of us have it. And he just was, you know, you're never there in ministry. You're never done. And so he felt that. He felt the pressure of that. Now, I, I mentioned to you his style. Uh, three basic points about it. Solid exegesis just came right out of the text almost a verse-by-verse commentary was his approach. But very lofty in his rhetoric. You've already heard the way he talks. So very easy to listen to. But but the outline of it was whatever passage he was preaching. And he just preached through books of the Bible. He just preached through First Corinthians. And, you know, I've got some of his sermons and it's just beautiful to listen to. Lofty language and fearless, utterly prophetic applications. There was a sense of the prophetic in the way he would apply the Scripture. Fearless. His philosophy of ministry came out in uh, on the priesthood. I'd like to read one thing that, that struck me and was kind of convicting to me. He said, I do not know whether anyone has ever succeeded in not enjoying praise. And if he enjoys it, he naturally wants to receive it. Now, he's thinking about ministers now, people in the ministry. I've never met anyone who didn't who succeeded in not enjoying praise. And if he enjoys it, he naturally wants to receive it. And if he wants to receive it, he cannot help it being pained and distraught over losing it. Men who are in love with applause have their spirits starved, not only when they are blamed offhand, but even when they fail to be constantly praised. That's a danger, isn't it? It's a danger for all of us, but it's especially a danger in the ministry because if you start to tread on toes or whatever by preaching the word, there's a temptation to kind of pull back because you're losing that. It's kind of like you're a sailor and you're kind of off the wind now. and you know, You're know you not feeling the, the, the force of people's pleasure, I guess is what it is. And you don't feel that flow. And there's a tendency to say, well, let me get back to where the wind is. There we go. And now it's flowing again. And John didn't do that. He said, you've got to watch that. Now, I wanted to give you some samples of his preaching, but here it is, 7:30. I, I, I'll tell you this. We've talked about lessons on Scripture interpretation already. We don't have time to compare origin to Chrysostom. Let me give you a few lessons from his life, and then I'll choose one of the portions, and we'll finish with that. We've already talked some about the value and dangers of asceticism. What is the value? It gives you courage. It purifies you. It weans you off of the things of the world so you don't care about those things as much. Dangers, you can push it too far. Physically, they're dangerous get sick and there's spiritual danger as well and that's pride. You can be more proud of your fasting and your praying you know than you were before and so it ends up worse than before. Also what do we learn from John and that's the courage in preaching the truth. It takes courage to tell the truth. It takes courage and courage in ministry is very important. John had it. I think if you push it too far you could say he lacked tact. I think you know there's courage and then there's tactlessness. And I don't know if the Herodias sermon was the best sermon at that particular time. I don't really know. I don't even know if he preached it, but I know it was like putting out a fire with kerosene. I mean, it was just the wrong thing to do. It can be. I think there's more of that than the other, but then there's the other side in which you don't really care what people think, and and it's probably out of a heart of no love. You know, you're supposed to love and preach out of love, and John did. I think he's free of that charge. He loved these people, and he preached like even with Eutropius. He was not trying to humiliate the guy, but he really felt that's what it took to break him. Pride is a very difficult thing. This guy was the most powerful man on the face of the earth. Those kind of guys have a certain personality type and they are not easily saved. And so he was doing what he thought was necessary. What did Jesus do to the scribes and Pharisees? Some of the Pharisees became Christians. You know that? Some of them did, but it was not easy. And it takes severe language. And Jesus used that. But you're right, Mac, and, and that's something. I think you, you know, there is more the temptation to be soft and to seek the pleasure of people. I feel it. Um, passion for the poor, passion for scripture, passion for purity, and a passion for God. We've talked about all those, although insufficiently. What I would like to do is just read a sample of one of his sermons, and then we'll close with that. I don't know which one to choose. I, I'll take you what, I'll preach. I, I will, um, read the one in which he talks about, um, homily on excessive grief at the death of friends. Now, the text was um, 1 Thessalonians 4 in which he says, I do not want you to grieve like the hopeless. Don't grieve like those who have no hope. We, should, we as Christians should grieve differently than that. And this is what John said. Believe me, I am ashamed and blushed to see unbecoming groups of women pass along the market tearing their hair, cutting their arms and cheeks and all this under the eyes of the Greeks. That means Gentiles. For what will they not say? What will they not declare concerning us? Are these the men who reason about a resurrection? But they act just like those who do not acknowledge resurrection. If they fully believed in a resurrection, they would not act thus this way. If they had really persuaded themselves that a deceased friend had departed to a better state, they would not thus mourn. These things and more than these, the unbelievers say when they hear these lamentations, let us then be ashamed and be more moderate. And and not occasion so much to harm, our, so much harm to ourselves and to those who are looking on us. So what he's saying is he's saying you're walking through the city and mourning like the pagans do. Don't do that. Let's instead. And the whole sermon's beautiful. It just unfolds the 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 beauty of the Christian hope and that we should grieve. And he talks about that, but not over much. Anyway, this is a uh, beautiful. Uh, this is 20 centuries of great preaching, and it's got uh, uh, sermons by Origen and. Uh, Some by Chrysostom, and I'd kind of like to loan this to somebody who might be interested in reading. All right, Mac. All right, but get it back to me. All right, all right. Any questions about Chrysostom that we could... Yes. To me, that preaching comes out of who you are in Christ. His preaching, his power came out of his relationship with Jesus Christ. And his asceticism, I think, gave him the strength of that relationship. His ongoing habits of prayer and fasting and seeking the Lord gave him power to preach. You can't cut the roots out from under that or else it's just a show, it's a display. And what it caused me to do is look inward at my root system. Is it like Daniel who was that way as well? Uh, Is it like John or is it something different? That's what I took out of this is that the power to preach comes out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I think so. And also he was extraordinarily gifted by God. I mean, the words just flowed and not everyone can put phrases together that way. Um, And so I think that's a beautiful thing. When you think about it, from one man... God created every nation of men. All of that was locked into the complexities of genetics, wasn't it? I mean, physically, we've all been descended from one person. That's what we believe. And all of it was built into that original man and his wife, Eve. And from that have come an incredible variety of human beings. And John was one of them. And I think it's incredible. I I look forward to seeing that whole mosaic of humanity up in heaven that have been saved through faith in Christ and how different they all are and yet they all love the same Lord. So he he had a strong walk with God, but he was remarkably gifted too. God just gave him the ability to put things into words. Well, I'll stand and talk about John for a few more minutes, but we should release the group. Let's uh, close in prayer.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org.